Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Psalm chapter 32 of our Psalms for this week. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 11. This is a Psalm of David, a masculine. And before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. God, we thank you for your word that you've given to us, and we ask that as we hear your word read and proclaimed today, God, that you would give us a new perspective. God, that you would help us to see things more from your perspective. God, we pray that you would continue to shape us by your word and by your spirit, that we would be reformed into the people that you have created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Psalm 32 of David, a masculine. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. And turning to John 21. Last week we read the first part of John 21. where we saw Jesus, having been raised from the dead, appearing to his disciples when they'd been out fishing and catching nothing. But then, miraculously, as he directs them, they catch a lot. So picking up in verse 10, it says, Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you, Jesus said. Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, 
feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to return, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die, but Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are places in the Bible that talk about uh, things were going bad in my life, and then God rescued me from this bad situation. You familiar with those? You have uh, many situations throughout the Bible where you have the people in um, who've been brought out of slavery in Egypt, and as they're wandering through the wilderness, and they say, we're going to die out here. There's no water. Ah, but God provides water and saves them. Or we're going, to, uh, we're going to starve to death. There's no food. And God miraculously provides food in the wilderness, and they have something to eat, and he saves them again. Or we have uh, the situation of things like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. After the people in Israel, Israel had been taken into captivity in Babylon, and they are being forced to bow down and worship not God. And these three guys said, we can't do that. And so then to the fiery furnace you go. And then we see, you know, this is pretty bad, but God rescues them out of this. He saves them, and they don't get burned up in the fire. And we hear psalms like this where uh, David says, you know, I was sinking in a miry, muddy clay, but you rescued me. You picked me up, and you brought me out of that, and you put my feet on a, on a rock. And so we hear these kinds of stories, and we think, all right, I get it now. I understand what it means to be a Christian. And what it means to be a Christian is to be in a bad situation where life is going bad. <laughs> and you turn to God, and you cry out for help, and he makes all your bad stuff go away. And then everything is good again. It's easy to get that conclusion. Unfortunately, that's not Christianity at all. And if you read in the letter uh, to the Hebrews, chapter 11, you have this whole chapter on what it means to live by faith and what that looks like. And it goes through all these Old Testament uh, people who have lived by faith in God. And the first part of the chapter is just detailing story after story of how they live by faith. And because of that, living by faith, God rescues them from one bad situation after another. And that's where most people like to stop. But the end of the chapter says, oh, wait, 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 but that's not all. Let me tell you about another group of people who also live by faith, and because of their faith, things were a lot worse for them. 
And we have people who are being persecuted for their faith or being killed for their faith. There are people who got sought in two. Who does that? He says, this is what happened to people who live by faith. And so if you read that whole chapter, don't stop at the beginning, then you see, okay, that Christianity can't be, if my life is going bad, I turn to God, he makes it better. It can't be that. And unfortunately, there's enough preaching out there today that makes it sound like that. It's really easy to draw that conclusion. But we're going to look at a guy today by the name of Saul. Saul, Paul. I'll probably slip and call him Paul, but this time he's still mostly around Hebrew people, and so he's mostly still going by Saul. Um, Same guy. We're talking about him, and we're going to see what happens in his life and how things go after he becomes a Christian, after he meets Jesus on this road to Damascus. And just for a little background, we're not going to go through his whole story again. We talked about last week how he was the... um, the closest thing the Bible has to a modern-day ISIS member, that he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. In Philippians, he actually describes himself and his sort of spiritual resume. And he says, If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for the zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So this is what he, how he describes himself. If there's anybody who is going to be up for, you know, Pharisee of the year, this is the guy. But that's not what God was looking for. And so we saw last week that uh, everything changed as he's going from Jerusalem to Damascus. And he's going there with letters from the chief priest to find any Christians who are there so that he can have them killed or thrown in prison. That's what he's going for. Think they're going to be real excited when he gets there? Probably not. But on the road, Jesus appears to him. The resurrected Jesus appears to him. And Saul says, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, the one who you're perse- whom you're persecuting. And then he says, now, get up and go to Damascus. You're going to be shown what you have to do there. Let me go back to what it was that, well, now, we'll get there later. Let's go ahead and tell the story first. So we'll see how things go for Saul once he gets into Damascus. He gets there. He's been blind physically, by the bright light when he saw Jesus. He uh, struck with blindness, but then his sight is restored by a man named Ananias. And in this, we have that spiritual metaphor, the physical blindness showing that all his life he had been spiritually blind, but now he can finally see. And so, picking up the story, Acts chapter 9, starting halfway through verse 19. It says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night 
and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So here's what happens with Saul. He becomes a Christian. And is his story the story of everything was going bad in my life, but then I came to know God and he got everything fixed for me? Is that his story? Not even close. In fact, his story is almost exactly the opposite. Like everything seems to be going really well in his life. And he is this young man who's rising to the top in his field. And his field is the, like, on God's team sort of field. And so if anybody is going to be the close to God person, it's this guy. And as he's rising to the top, he's even got letters from the chief priest. He's got backing to go on this mission. And he's going to go on this mission, and he's going to come back, and he's going to be hailed as a hero. That's what he's thinking setting out. Everything is going well, and it's just going to get better. And then he meets Jesus. And in Damascus, people try to kill him. He actually has to sneak out of the city by being lowered out of a basket in the middle of the night so that they don't kill him. He is now on the run for his life. And then he comes back home. Oh, but at least, you know, you can go back home. Or people know me. And no, that doesn't go well either. In fact, when he gets back home, nobody wants to talk to him. Nobody. The, uh, the Jews that he had hung out with before, they don't want him anymore. He is now the traitor. You've joined the other side. You are now the enemy, and the one who was the hunter has now become the hunted, and so he's got to stay away from them. He goes to the Christians, those disciples in Jerusalem. They won't talk to him either. Why not? Just not that long ago, he had been seeking Christians to kill them. He had been, he'd been playing an active role in Stephen's martyrdom, his execution. And now here he is saying, no, 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 guys, it's fine. I'm, I'm on your side now. Anybody here just be ready to jump at that opportunity to welcome him with open arms? I don't think so. This is one of those, I don't know, I don't care how long you have been a Christian if you have somebody who's making death threats against you, and then they come back and they're like, oh, by the way, I, yeah, I'm not doing that anymore. I, I want to join you. <laughs> There's nobody whose first response is, great, God's doing a wonderful thing in your life. Everybody's first response is going to be, ah, hang on a second. <laughs> I don't know if that's for real. And especially with somebody like this who has been going from place to place trying to get access to Christians who are kind of in hiding from him. This would be a great way for him to just get in close so he could slit your throat. So they're like, no, no, no. We don't want anything to do with you. 
So now the people that he, <laughs> the, the Jewish people, they don't want him. The Christians, they don't want him. He's got nobody. So he left Jerusalem as somebody who is on the rise, and he comes back completely alone. Well, almost. But before we get there, let's go back to Philippians. Because so far the story is, <laughs> things are going great in Saul's life. He meets Jesus. Now everything's horrible. <laughs> so this is like an evangelistic sermon, right? So come to Jesus. If your life is going well, he'll make everything horrible. Isn't that great? It's kind of the opposite of what you would normally hear for an evangelistic sermon, but it's, <laughs> it is often the case. So here's what, uh, what Saul says when he's writing to the Philippians. All those things that we read earlier. You know, if someone thinks they have reason for confidence, I've got more. It's this, as that, as this, as that. And he said, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. That I, may be, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. This is Paul's new perspective on everything. And so from a worldly perspective, we say he had it all. And then he met Jesus and he lost it all. And he says, yes, that's exactly what happened. And I am so thankful that that is what happened. Because all those things that I was building my life around were false. They were temporary and they were leading me away from God. And I didn't even know it. And then I met Jesus and everything changed and everything completely turned around. And now I see that it was... It's completely worth it to lose all those things. Jesus tells a parable about a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field. You remember this one? He finds a treasure hidden in a field, and what does he do? He says he goes away, and he sells everything that he has so he can buy that field, so he can have that treasure, because that treasure is worth more than everything else he has. This is Paul's new perspective. This Jesus, knowing him, is worth more than everything else that I had before. Everything else that I had built my life on, everything else that was going well for me, all of that, compared to knowing Jesus, is garbage. Now, we said, we said he was all alone. He actually isn't. There's this one guy, a guy who just shows up occasionally throughout the New Testament story, one who doesn't probably get enough attention, a guy by the name of Barnabas, whose name actually means son of encouragement. He's an appropriately named fella. Barnabas comes in when Saul is there all alone and introduces him to the apostles who are still in Jerusalem. Barnabas is the one who vouches for Saul and says, he's the real deal. I saw what happened to him in Damascus. I saw the change in his life. I saw what it was, how he 
preached and how he taught and how he wasn't, he wasn't using this as a way to get close to Christians and then kill them. But he really is seeing the whole world from the perspective of a resurrected Jesus. That's changed everything. And the apostles then welcome him, and he's able to then go around in Jerusalem preaching and teaching. And, of course, again, there are people trying to kill him. <laughs> and he goes on from there. And we'll see this pattern a lot in the rest of Acts, that as people continue to teach about Jesus, they get the same response Jesus got. People trying to kill you. Now, one thing, uh, when we do see this happen in this moment, and then the church actually is encouraged, and they are, they begin to grow and spread and increase in numbers, and things are going well. But I want to go back to Paul. I see I did it there. To Saul and what he's, what he's talking about. Because Saul, we see, living a life of repentance. And repentance is more than just feeling bad about something. But it's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, he tells us later. Godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. And so you do have this feeling bad about what you've done when you come to realize, oh, I was out killing Christians, and apparently you're not supposed to do that. So he feels bad about it. But that's not repentance. Repentance is actually a turning around and going a different direction. And so everything that he had built his life on before, he turns away from that. And now he turns and is building his life on something else. Is that going to change how he behaves? Yes, it is. Is it going to change the kinds of things that he talks about and says? Absolutely. And so we see a completely different Saul before meeting Jesus and after meeting Jesus. And so that's going to change everything. It's going to change his view on power, on sex, on money, on everything, and the way that he relates to all those things. So then we see him preaching. What is it he's preaching about? Does he go into Damascus and say, I've seen everything differently now. Let me talk to you how you ought to handle your finances. Let me talk to you about the proper role of government. Let me talk to you about how you should handle yourselves considering the current sexual issues of the day. Is that what he preaches? It's not. Though those things are always involved, and those things will always be issues that get dealt with as you come to Jesus. But what is his message? What does he preach? He says, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And then later it says, He grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. This is his message. His message is that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that Jesus was the one who God had sent to rescue his people, and he didn't look like what Saul expected any more than he looked like anybody else expected. But now that he's met the risen Jesus, everything has come into focus. All that all that information, this is what I was talking to the kids about with that cross, all the information that he had about the Old Testament, that didn't change. He didn't suddenly have to go learn a bunch more stuff about the Old Testament. Suddenly, all the things he knew clicked into place in light of Jesus. And so he begins to teach Jesus really is the Son of God. He really is 
the Messiah. And of course, if people see that, it changes your perspective on everything else. And so you do handle your money differently. You do handle power differently. You do view sexual issues differently. But those are the outworking of coming to Jesus and meeting him. They're not the primary. That was the one of the issues that Saul had before as a Pharisee. Peter or Jesus told the Pharisees, you're whitewashed tombs. You've got it all right on the outside. All your behavior looks like it's right. But inside, it's like rotting bones. Saul now has it the other way around. He has life on the inside, and that shines forth on the outside. One final thing. We talked last week about how Saul later says, you know, I was the worst of all the sinners. I mean, I went around finding the people who Jesus has called to himself and adopted as children of God, and I was searching them out to kill them. And he forgave me. And so we said, if Jesus could forgive Saul, he could forgive anybody. And that's actually one of the points he makes. He could forgive me, he could forgive anybody. And that's great. That's very great. So if you weren't here last week, important that you hear that. Or if you were, important you hear it again. But I hope you saw also in this that just as Jesus always ties together uh, God forgiving us and us forgiving others, that there, there was two separate occasions in Saul's life. One where he realized that he was forgiven by God, but then when he has to come to Jerusalem and try to meet up with the, with the apostles there, will they be able to forgive him? And it is a separate issue, completely tied together with their own forgiveness. We saw Peter being forgiven by Jesus on the, on the beach. We read that a little bit ago. And now Peter is one of the apostles. As Saul comes to him, he says, no, 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 really. I've met Jesus. I'm sorry for all that I did before. Is Peter going to be able to welcome men? Or is he going to say, no, what you've done is too bad. This is the position that we are in as a church. We are all in the position of Peter, who has been forgiven and now needs to offer forgiveness to others. We're all in the position of Saul, who have done things that need to be forgiven by God and also need to be forgiven by our brothers and sisters. We are about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the reconciling that happens at the cross and the resurrection between us and God, but also between us and each other. So as we approach the table today, I want you to consider this. Are there things that you still need to be forgiven of? Are there still things that you're holding on to where you say, no, I can't even ask God to forgive me of that because it's too much? There's nothing too much. That's one of the things that this table is about. Or is there some forgiveness you need to ask from someone else? Or forgiveness you need to offer to someone else? Something you've been holding on to and saying, well, what they did was too bad, and I can't forgive them either. This is a meal of communion between us and God and us and each other. It is true that sometimes when Jesus comes into our lives, he takes things 
that seem to be going well and messes it all up. But it's also true that when that happens, it's always for a reason. And as Saul said later, it's worth it. It is so worth it to have all of that get messed up because all that was leading to death anyway, and Jesus came bringing life. So, as we come to the table, let's have a new perspective on the things leading to death and the one who came bringing life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.